You're listening to Vet Candy. Hello and welcome to this episode of Vet Candy IRL, and I'm your host, Jenny Gregoire. So today I'm bringing you a very interesting guest who has spent his whole career on the employment side of law, and his name is Omar A. Lopez who is an attorney that has been focusing on behalf of employees or plaintiffs. He is licensed to practice in the states of New York and New Jersey, and has been litigating employment cases for over a decade in state and federal courts. He's a current member of the board of directors for the New Jersey chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, which advocates for employee rights throughout the United States. Hi, Mr. Lopez. How are you? Oh, you can call me Omar. Hi, Shannon. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I know we have some really important things to discuss because it's been a a hot topic lately for contract negotiations in veterinary medicine. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. There's quite a bit, I think, to cover in terms of, you know, my understanding is the veterinary profession is in sort of a crisis. Is that right? Yes, we are currently in a veterinarian shortage. There's less than 119,000 vets in in the United States, which I think that plays out to be with the general population about one veterinarian for every 4,000 U.S. citizens. So it's quite a a challenging metric to look at when you break it down. Yeah, I can only imagine. I think it's very different from the world of lawyers. No offense to any of my attorney brothers and sisters out there, but we're literally choking each other, you know, because so many graduate and lawyers are long lived. You know, you keep working well into your 80s. It's a great profession, but there are a lot of us. And so uh, based on your estimate, I would say there's about 10 times that, if not more, of attorneys. So you're saying one, you know, one veterinarian for every 4,000 people in the U.S., there's about one attorney for every 400 or so people in the U.S. So there's 10 times that amount. You know, on the bright side, even though there's a shortage of veterinarians, you really, it seems like you don't ever have to worry about being out of work in the near future. And so that's, that seems like a positive. Yeah, I know. Even with all this economic uncertainty and all this crazy stuff going on, I think our job growth reflection for the next, I'd be by 2030, I mean, we still have about 17% job growth, which is way more than the majority of the average um, professions in the United States. So I will be employed until I'm 90. That is a positive. That is a, a, a silver lining there. On the downside, I hear there's some problems with respect to actually getting the jobs and negotiating them and contracts. Um, and I know you wanted to talk about that. Yeah. So contracts lately have been a huge source of stress for veterinarians, um, either when they're coming out of school, trying to figure out where they want to go, or, you know, a few years down the road, um, looking for a new job and realizing you might not be as free to choose the next place of work as you might think unless you want to move out of a certain city or out of a certain state sometimes to find new employment. Um, and one of those those biggest, um, just in general, I think that veterinarians should learn how to really finesse their art of negotiation, especially women who seem to be statistically more uh, risk averse or conflict averse um, tend to accept the base or starting offer instead of negotiating higher or more benefits and things like that. 
And there's science to back that up, right? I, mm-hmm. I did some research before coming on the podcast. So I did do my homework. I saw that the what is it? The Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association has confirmed that there's a gender wage gap for uh, female veterinarians. Uh, that was released March of last year, March of 2021. There's tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, uh, that are not being paid to women. You know, I can give you a couple of ideas for why that could be. But one of them that seems to sort of permeate through different industries is this idea that women are just less likely to negotiate. That's not the whole explanation, but that could be part of the explanation. Um, and to that, I would say, you know, to you and all your sisters, make sure you negotiate. You have the power, you know, and uh, if you need help, call a lawyer. Yes, especially so. in this job market. It's so hot for the employee side that, you know, you can really negotiate for what you want in this market and find a practice who is willing to accommodate what you're looking for. Yeah, I think we should maybe dig into that a little bit. There's a, there's a concept when it comes to negotiation of leverage. Everything we've been talking about so far, to me as an attorney, I, you know, I start to think, hey, uh, you actually have some leverage here. There's not a lot of veterinarians. You have a very stable job outlook. If uh, practice is looking for a new veterinarian, they're probably very limited in terms of who is actually going to come and respond to their uh, email blast or their recruiter looking for people. And so, um, you know, where in other professions you would have 10 or 20 times the amount of applicants, there's just not that many people that have those skills. Uh, And so that that gives you leverage. That gives you power in in the negotiation. And maybe people uh, are not aware of that. You know, you you have a tendency, I think, uh, just as a human being to, you know, be grateful that you're receiving an interview or be grateful that you're receiving a job offer. And the tendency, I think, is just accept it. Hey, I'm getting a job offer. I better accept it. Uh, I think that's fraught with danger in the veterinary profession because based on some of the contracts that I've reviewed and based on everything that I've seen in terms of the news and some movements that are out there, the veterinary profession, just like many others, are being quite restrictive with their contracts. Uh, Those restrictions can be quite dangerous. And so I think it pays not to, you know, just accept that offer as it comes along. Mm -hmm. It pays to have someone else review it. Certainly, I would recommend uh, an employment attorney who's licensed in your state, who has experience reviewing these types of contracts. And then if it makes sense, continue to retain that attorney to then help you negotiate that contract until it's exactly the type of contract that you want to sign. And so. you know, we'll keep we'll keep talking about that. But uh, I did want to just point out in terms of leverage, veterinarians, especially new graduating veterinarians, have leverage like nothing I've ever seen before. So when someone is given a contract and they want to look for legal counsel, is there anywhere or anyone they should specifically look for, like any certain subtype of lawyer, maybe like a specialty, something like that, that um, they have more experience in contracts? I'm glad you asked that question. I think it's a, a really important thing we need to talk about and address in the podcast today. Not all attorneys and lawyers are created alike. Uh, they might be all very bright and intelligent, but just like in medicine, there are lots of different subspecialties. So there's you know, uh, bankruptcy, intellectual property, trademark lawyers, divorce lawyers. There's even lawyer, you know, people that focus on entertainment. And then you have employment lawyers. And even within the employment law, Contexts, 
you have a lot of different subspecialties that are within employment law. So not all employment lawyers would be able to necessarily look at a contract and determine whether or not it's legal or if you should negotiate or if you have any leverage. And so really what you should be doing is start focusing on employment lawyers sort of as a subgroup. And then when you call or check around, you should ask, do you have experience with dealing with restrictive covenants? That's the non-compete agreements, the non-solicitation agreements. Um, And you can ask if they not only have they negotiated these things, but also have they been involved in litigation regarding these subjects? Because it's one thing to sort of write the contracts and it's another to see how they play out over several years of lawsuits and litigation and, uh, you know, what what do judges think about these agreements? What do jurors think about these agreements? There are lawyers out there that do have that type of experience. You just kind of have to bear down and look for them. Uh, This is not the type of thing where I would suggest you should just go to a family friend or a friend who is a lawyer or a friend who went to one semester of law school. Because, not to say that those people couldn't be helpful to you in other respects, but when you sign an employment agreement or an employment contract, it could sort of set your path for the next several years. You know, that path could end up being a very happy one and you could have a great job and everything could go well. Or you could sign an agreement that locks you into a very unhappy job where you can't stand it and yet you can't afford to leave because you have to pay back a bonus. Or you can't afford to leave because the non-competition agreement would exclude you from working anywhere around where you live. So you'd have to basically leave your place of residence in order to find the new job. And that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario is a bad agreement will allow an employer, especially someone who's vindictive, to kind of hunt you down and file a lawsuit and force you to spend tens of thousands, if not, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars defending yourself in lawsuits because they allege that there was a misappropriation of trade secrets or confidential information was taken or uh, this person stole my clientele. All of that, I think, can be traced back to whether or not you fully negotiated that agreement. If you don't do it or if you just kind of sign on the dotted line and don't look for assistance, you know, yes, you, you didn't pay for a consultation with the lawyer and you didn't pay for them to review the agreement and negotiate it for you, but you may end up you know, really paying for that over the course of time, especially if you're ever dragged into litigation. Absolutely. So, and again, is this self-serving? Sort of. I mean, I am a lawyer and I think people should consult with lawyers. But like I said, I, in my firm, we wouldn't, couldn't possibly handle all the veterinarians out there. This is more of a public service announcement. You know, these are important contracts. They could dictate the course of your life uh, and they could dictate whether or not you could move on to another job and where you could move on to another job. And so they have to be given their due importance. You're listening to Vet Candy. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Well, I like to think of it kind of, you know, in veterinary medicine, we talk about preventative medicine and how early intervention, right, prevents more uh, complicated consequences down the line. So, you know, investing a little bit of money up front with a lawyer could, you know, save you a lot more complicated time and money down the line. So preventative legal advice, I guess, is, um, you know, how I would 
more make a, a similarity to medicine on how um, to think about this little investment into your future because that's what it is an investment into your future happiness, your future life. You know, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So for you to be fully aware of the sometimes ridiculously long documents that you have to sign to know exactly what every portion of it means is only going to benefit and help you in the yeah, future. Yeah, that's, re- that's a really good point. And I, I like that idea of preventive legal advice. That's really interesting. I may end up taking that from you. It's a very interesting way to think about it because, yes, it could, it could really prevent larger problems down the road. And I always say this, you have the leverage, I think. I think, I think new veterinarians coming into the practice have leverage. And vet, you know, certain types of veterinary staff as well. There, there's not enough of you to go around. Uh, and so you have certain types of leverage. But if you get to the point where a, a potential employer really will not bend and the potential employer is just not interested in listening to your concerns and sort of these run-of-the-mill changes with an obviously wrong language that's contained in a contract, it's just not being taken out because they don't feel like it, then you have to wonder what they're going to be like as an employer. You know, to me. I think that's a, an important way to think about it. You know, anything, any relationship is about give and take. So if at the outset, the employer is not engaging in that type of back and forth negotiation with you, then there may be a problem. And I feel like you can extrapolate that. They're going to, they may be like that around, you know, sick leave. They may be like that around, you know, when it comes time to, to hand out bonuses or, or raises, or, uh, you know, are you able to take your vacation time every year? Yes, you're given 10 days, but what's it going to be like if you actually take the time? I think those are all indications of what that relationship could be like. And so I would say this to you and all, uh, you know, all incoming veterinarians or all, all vets that want to change jobs, you know, uh, don't be afraid to walk away. If, if something seems wrong and if they're not treating you the way that you should be treated and they're not giving you the respect you deserve, even at this early phase, don't be afraid to walk away. You of all people have the power to find another job. <laughs> so so that's something to keep in mind. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the first things that we think about in negotiations is salary, you know, whatever structure that might be for that clinic, um, bonuses such as sign-on or relocation. Um, how do you go about negotiating, like, those financial components, like those strictly financial, like, payout components? I can say this, and I heard this with, uh, you were just on, I think another one of your guests, Paul Diaz, yeah, expert recruiter. And he explained sort of this secret that he's not supposed to tell people, which is that the, you know, HR or the recruiter will come to the potential employee with a much lower amount of money than they actually have budgeted. And that's absolutely true. That, That usually happens in, you know, Normally, in a negotiation, when uh, if you do it right and you don't sort of overextend, you're not going to lose the offer, and there usually is more money there, which means that that initial offer was always low. Why not ask for, for more or something you think is actually worth your while, especially when you have so much other opportunity out there? The other thing is that there are different components. You were talking about pro-sal or production Everyone has, you know, is there a pro-sal? Yes. Pro-sal is a particular formula where a practice could arrive at compensation for veterinarian. But it doesn't mean that just because they say it's pro-sal that they actually follow that formula. So you really have to ask the questions and find out precisely how compensation is arrived at 
to understand if I stay here and work for a couple of years, and let's say I do sell some of their product, what is that going to equate to? Those are questions that should not be, I think, offensive to ask to a, to a practice. And if they are, again, it signals a problem. Uh, but you should be able to ask, okay, so can we go through some examples here of what exactly your compensation structure would mean to me so that I can understand what the total package is worth? You know, because I'm still thinking about this and I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me, but I really would like to understand, you know, how I would be compensated with a couple of assumptions. And that's really important, I think, when it comes to this idea of production or having to sell products. Not everyone is a salesperson and not everyone enjoys selling products. If you don't, then you should be happy with the base salary and, you know, you should, I think, avoid or be very careful with any idea of this negative accrual, where if you're not selling a certain amount of products per month or whatever it is, that you actually lose money or you have to start paying back money. Everyone, I think, structures their agreements the way that they feel will make sense, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to accept it. That, that would be my basic advice. Ask questions, make sure you understand it. If you don't understand it, start looking for an expert, a mentor, someone to help you understand how this deal is actually being put together. And take your time. I think there's no reason really to rush into accepting an agreement or a salary that you don't fully understand because, you know, you're probably going to get locked into it for a while. Right. Or, you know, how does, you know, if I take five days of vacation one month and you're on a pro sale, like how would they calculate then what metric are you supposed to be hitting or, or, you know, how are you going to be hit or are you going to lose money that month if you had a negative accrual in there? So all that stuff is very complicated and has a lot of minutia in the contract that you have to like wade through. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. Or if you get sick, say for instance, you get sick, how is that going to affect your compensation? If at all, are you going to be penalized because whatever you got COVID or um, in particular for female veterinarians, you know, is there some method where you'd be penalized because you took maternity leave, you had a baby and you weren't able to keep up with production. Are you now going to be losing money because of that? So um, those are all, I think, good questions, important things to think about as you go through that process. You're listening to Vet Candy. As a veterinarian, it's important to perfect your clinical skills. That's why Vet Candy created a master course in toxicology. The master course is taught by a board-certified criticalist and delivers a thorough evaluation of the science and clinical practice skills needed to master toxicology, from decontamination to treatment. And when you complete the course, you receive exclusive tools to celebrate, recognize, and share your accomplishment. And what's even more exciting, the course is free and provides race and New York State approved continuing education credits. This program is brought to you by Vitoquinol. Start learning today at myvetcandy.com forward slash talks. Start learning today at myvetcandy.com forward slash TOX. Absolutely. And then the big elephant in the room is all of those, uh, you know, restrictive covenants, like non-competes, non-solicitations. Can we go through kind of the different components of the restrictive covenants and, you know, difference between solicitation of clients and solicitation of 
um, employees and then the non-compete. Yeah, I think those are really important topics to cover. I, I did want to point out something else regarding, you know, as you as you come on is this idea of signing bonuses. Is it technically a restrictive covenant? No, but it is something I think that is, you know, onerous. You receive a signing bonus, and then if you leave before an allotted amount of time, then you have to pay some of it back or all of it back. So um, I think you and Paul Diaz discussed that. I just think, again, it's very important to understand exactly how that operates and to ask questions and to get any additional uh, discussions. Make sure they put it down in writing. If they're clarifying something for you, uh, get it in writing so you have an understanding of what that means. The most important thing is that if there is going to be some sort of clawback for a sign-on bonus, that it's prorated. So um, it doesn't just stay at whatever amount of money it is. You know, Every week that you work there should be reducing the amount of money that you'd have to pay back. And look, sign-on bonuses, they seem very uh, attractive. And I understand that people may be attracted to the sign-on bonuses. That's why they exist. On the other hand, nothing really comes for free. And so you kind of, again, have to wonder why this particular practice has to pay such extravagant sign-on bonuses. And then uh, you get a nice sign-on bonus, but how bad is that non-compete going to be? You know, how bad is the non-solicitation going to be? Have they litigated against their former uh, employees and gone after them to put them out of business because they left, you know, too early or they thought they took business away from them? You know, the likelihood of one single new vet taking business away from sort of a giant employer, I think is pretty low. Uh, that's the reality of the situation. But, you know, contracts are written in one way. That's the sort of the uh, the mold. And so that mold doesn't take into account the reality there. So I'd be very careful. Going back to what you were saying in terms of uh, restrictive covenants, let's talk about non-solicitation. Yeah, so non-solicitation agreements essentially prevent you from contacting uh, clients or employees of the practice after you leave. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm going to say that here. There's nothing wrong with that. If the actual goal of the practice is to prevent disruption to their practice after someone leaves. So, you know, the nightmare scenario is someone comes in, meets everyone and decides to completely disrupt that practice because they hire every employee away. They hire the practice manager away and they open up shop next door and they take all the clients and practice number one ends up crumbling. You know? And so that's the, ni- the nightmare scenario. There are ways, I think, to deal with that you know, in a realistic fashion without requiring a, a really onerous non-solicitation agreement. There is a period of time where it may be reasonable where someone couldn't hire away employees because it could interfere with your practice. But it can't be forever, uh, nor should it be many years. You know, six months to a year, I think, is uh, ends up being, you know, sort of at about that sweet spot of where it would make sense. And not to say that I agree with it, but that's where it would make sense for a practice to kind of put that out there. Hey, if you come work with me, you can't hire away any of my employees for six months to a year, somewhere around there. Uh, and then when it comes to clients, you know, I have a fundamental problem with this idea of non-solicitation of clients. Not to say that a new veterinarian who ends up leaving a practice should go after every one of their old practices' clients. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, and certainly, direct solicitation of those clients is probably going to be you know, a, a problem from a legal perspective, not just based on an agreement, but potentially from a common law perspective. 
your state law may prevent you from doing something like that. To just go out and try to take away every one of that former practice's clients. On the other hand, I think that clients should have the right to find the veterinarian of their choice. And if you are the one that has been servicing their pet for two or three years and then you leave, I think it's only logical that they have the ability to follow you if they so choose. And I think it's only logical that you could tell former clients that, hey, I've moved to a different place. I don't think you can tell them, hey, I moved to a different place because those jerks at that former practice didn't treat me right for three years because then I think that goes beyond what you're trying to do. So, um, you know, you kind of just have to take a a mature look at leaving that practice, what your agreement says. Um, And so that's, I think, an area of concern there is non-solicitation. How long is a non-solicitation agreement for? How onerous is it or how complex is it? Some of them could say that you cannot speak to, write, or contact any former or current client or potential client that has come into the practice within the last 24 months. I mean, that's really bad, I think, in terms, in terms of how, how are you supposed to know? You know, if you go somewhere and, uh, you know, two years later, someone walks in and they have a pet, are you still going to remember? No. Well, and, you know, with all this veterinarian shortage, there's people just trying to get appointments wherever they can go sometimes because, you know, there's backups everywhere. So that then leaves all these pets that can't be seen at all. And they might have something really bad going on, but you're supposed to just say, oh, no, I can't help you because I work for your previous vet and legally I can't like provide you a service. I, I, absolutely. Some of the agreements that I've seen actually would prevent the veterinarian from seeing any of their former clients, even if they came to them independently. And so um, that to me just really equates to a lack of care for animals. And that seems to be against what veterinarians should be standing for. So yeah, I, I agree. I, so this is, I mean, you, you know, you're not supposed to, I, I don't know that this is exactly the oath, but certainly do no harm. The spirit of that would be contained in that oath. And I think that that could lead to harm if an animal is not getting taken care of, or, you know, it could lead to harm to the pet owner too, if because they can't find a clinic, then they, now the problem gets worse and now they have to go to an emergency clinic. And so what maybe something that could have been resolved, you know, two weeks ago, has now turned into a $5,000 or $10,000 investment on their part. That certainly doesn't serve, uh, you know, care for that pet either. Is this a legal perspective? I just want to point out, is this a legal perspective? It's not necessarily a legal perspective. I think this is a point of contention between, uh, you know, what are veterinarians willing to take as they go through this process? I think this, you know, right now we're in the middle of a churn. You have a lot of leverage. You have a lot of practices out there. They're trying to hire people. And this is a point of contention. Are you going to be able to agree to onerous non-solicitation agreements concerning clients? Or is it more likely, does it make more sense, that clients should be able to follow you if they so choose? That's kind of how it works in the legal world. Don't hold it against us because we also wrote some of those rules. But it's against public policy to hold an attorney to a non-compete agreement. It's also against public policy to not permit a client to basically follow the attorney of their choosing. They always have the power to follow, to, to find their own attorney. That's inherent in the attorney-client relationship. And it, and it makes sense, I think, because otherwise you'd be able to prevent clients from leaving. 
No, I'm your, I'm your attorney for life. You can never leave me. <laughs> it's, it's just not how it works. It, you know, it calls for a ma- mature look at this idea. And I, th- and I would say practice owners as well. Practice owners really think about what you really need to make sure that your practice isn't interfered with. But at the same time, I would not overextend because when, you, when it comes down to it, are these agreements really going to hold up in court? Probably not. You know, probably not. It will take investment, you know, litigation expenses, hiring attorneys on both sides, but a really onerous agreement that's really overreaching. And I don't think it would make a judge very happy. And when they're not happy, they start, they take out their red pen and they start marking things out. And so, um, you know, I, as a practice owner, I wouldn't want to be in that situation either. Right. Right. And why would you want to be that disrespectful to your fellow doctors either? You know, you want to both be mutual respectful in this agreement to each other, you know, respectful of the business, but also respectful of this person's ability to choose where and how they practice. So it's a, there needs to be some sort of sweet spot where both parties um, can still have that mutually beneficial relationship. But if that relationship ended that, you know, neither one would be, you know, stripped of their livelihood because someone left. Shannon, if you ever don't want to be a veterinarian, the legal profession is waiting for you with open arms because I couldn't have said it any better myself. That's it right there. The sweet spot that serves the interests of both parties. That's not too one-sided. That's exactly what you want. And that's the kind of agreement where both, you know, both sides can live with it. And if something ever comes where it's not working out, then the veterinarian that has to leave will be able to move on maybe with some slight restrictions, but nothing that will put them out of business completely. And the former practice will have some protections for for what they need to continue operations. That's exactly what you want. To lock someone out of a particular area, you know, for two years, you can't be a vet within 30 miles of this practice. That's going to end up being a problem. From a legal perspective, it's not likely to hold up depending on where you are. And then from a humanistic perspective, I think that's going to lead to a lot of rancor and discord among former associates, you know, who might band together and then wait out those two years and then pull everyone away from you because everyone hates you. So that's, that's not productive either. Uh, so yes, I, I like what you're saying, you know, respect for your fellow doctors. That certainly needs to be taken into account. Yeah. I think, you know, veterinarians are inundated with the, oh, we care about our, our staff and our doctors and we give you all these free subscriptions and all these, you know, things you can do, but your contract will still choke you. So just don't read it. Just look at all these fancy things that we'll give you for free, but don't read your contract. That's what I feel like is happening. That's what I was saying about signing bonuses. You know, signing bonus is very attractive, but what else is coming with it? Or all these other interesting things. You get four weeks of vacation. Can you really take it? You know, can you, will they, are they going to hold it against you? Yeah, those are really, uh, really important thoughts. You asked about non-competes. What's the, what's the issue with non-competes in the veterinary profession? What's going on? listening to Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. 
Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. So there's been a lot of, especially with COVID and everything, a lot of veterinarians moving around, changing where they're working and everything. And then they realize that they have this non-compete that is preventing them from working where they currently live. There's been so many vets that had to move to completely different cities or completely different states for the duration of their non-compete in order to then move back to where their family and friends are, which to me is just absolutely insane that anyone would would wish that upon someone just because they would like to not work at the same place any longer. No, and no matter if it's a positive or negative um, end to the relationship, I don't understand why you'd want someone to completely uproot their life. Like you're not going to uproot your business and move it to a different state. Why would you want someone to uproot their life like that? Yeah. So non-competes are, are certainly very contentious. I have strong feelings about them, as I'm sure you can tell. But just from a, from a legal perspective, non-competes deal with sort of three scopes or sort of three horizons you got to look at. You have to look at the geographic scope. How far around this practice or practices are you limited from working? How long is it going to last, right? That's the temporal scope. And then is the profession or the, or, or the duties that are being restricted here, are they correctly identified? You know, for instance, I think that the idea that a general practice veterinarian would be restricted from engaging in general practice, you know, clinic work is really odd because there's nothing to me, don't get me wrong, I know that being a veterinarian took a lot of time and effort to get to that point. But there's really no sense in restricting general practice veterinarians from, from working around the clinic when there's tons of other clinics around the area probably doing the same work. I know there's a shortage of veterinarians. I know there's not a ton of veterinarians. But you certainly can go see a vet within a couple of weeks if you really try. Or there's ER clinics or, or whatever it is. So what I'm saying is, is there's, a, there's a good amount of competition out there already it's not a lot because every, I think everyone right now is sort of inundated with clients and there's not enough staff to go around. But it would make more sense for non-competition agreements if you were dealing with something that was very specific, very specialized. If you're working on a new drug therapy, if you're working on a new antiviral agent, and there's a lot of science that goes into it. And so you have all these trade secrets in your head and, and or you've come up with this new you know, way to diagnose cancer using this computer-generated algorithm or something like that, then I start to see perhaps why you would not want someone leaving and going and setting up shop and doing the same exact thing for someone else because it's very specialized. It's something that's very unique. I tend to stand against non-competes that are kind of used like a big giant paintbrush and they just brush everyone in the clinic, you know? So all veterinarians, you know, all vet techs, cannot work anywhere else within 30 miles of here for two years. I, you know, that I, I would have a problem with. I would tend to think that most courts would have a problem with that as well, because it doesn't make sense to me that you would be restricting sort of general practitioners from that. Well, I've actually had people who um, work at different veterinary groups that they're like, oh, there's a non-compete in there, but it'll never hold up in court. So it's fine. But 
if it doesn't hold up in court, then why is it in my contract? Why is it there? Why don't you just take it out if you can't legally enforce it? That's actually a really important point. And I've seen that before. Not only would it not hold up in court, but it's actually illegal to have certain provisions in a contract depending on the state. So there's certain states that don't allow a certain period of time or over a certain period of time for a non-compete. All companies will sort of routinely, you know, just add time. Hey, five years, three years, they just pick a number. It's illegal to do that. And they do it anyways. And so, um, yes, if you find out that someone has inserted an illegal provision, me personally, I would not be signing that. Listen, everybody makes mistakes. Perhaps it was a mistake that was, you know, copied and pasted over from years before. But if someone is aware that they have something that won't hold up in court, or they're aware that they're violating the law and they do it anyways, I think the onus is on you to make sure that you and probably your attorney are going to be fighting to get those provisions out. There's an idea out there. I don't favor this idea that, hey, if it's against public policy, it's against the law, just sign it because they can't hold you to it anyways. I don't agree with signing anything that would be against the law or signing anything that contains a provision that really should not be in there because they've admitted it shouldn't be in there. Those those things need to be taken out. That uh, contract or the agreement should be in perfect shape and form so that whatever is in there needs to be in there and whatever doesn't need to be in there should have been taken out. And if you can't get to that point, then, you you know, again, be very suspicious of, you know, the practice owner or of an employer who is not going to address these issues with maturity and reasonableness because they probably won't treat you very well as an employee either. Right, exactly. And then it makes you kind of uh, think about, you know, if you have to chain me to your clinic, I, I wonder why you would want to chain me legally to your clinic, you know? Are you, do you have trouble, you know, retaining staff when I'm not around and people aren't on their best behavior? You know, it makes you just think about why these people are trying to trap you there, basically, legally. And it doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth. That's the unintended consequence of, uh, you know, these non-compete agreements is, you know, ideally what it's supposed to do is to allow an employer or a practice to continue to operate without uh, having unfair competition spring up, Right. And so someone who has received specialized training and specialized knowledge that they couldn't have gotten anywhere else, they're now going across the street and they're setting up shop. I just don't see it that much for, you know, the idea here that a, that a veterinarian who has graduated and knows what other veterinarians know has that kind of specialized knowledge or specialized training. No, you learned probably in school and then somewhat in practice how to conduct examinations of pets which all other veterinarians know. That's not that specialized knowledge there. And so I, you know, I question the idea of why, why uh, non-compete agreements are being used with such sort of ferocity. And then, yes, the unintended consequence for the person who's signing it is you end up not, want, you're not being able to leave. Because if I do leave, then I'm going to be stuck without a job or I have to move out of my state so that I can actually start practicing again. And a lot of people are not going to want to do that. And they, they may end up stuck in a, in an unhappy situation, or they may end up stuck somewhere they don't want to be, or perhaps they want to be an entrepreneur and they do want to form a new clinic. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but that kind of agreement could keep them from doing that. And it stifles competition. At the end of the day, when you stifle competition, you know, who really loses out are the clients and the pets because there's not, there's not enough places to go around. And, uh, 
whoever has that kind of monopoly can really charge whatever they want. You know, without competition, you can charge anything, you know. You're listening to Vet Candy. Put the needle on the record. Vet Candy Life is a talk show hosted by well-being gurus, Dr. Quincy Hawley and Renee Michelle. Each episode features expert tips, lifestyle advice, and real-life experiences from the most interesting people in the world. Check it out on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and more. Right, exactly, exactly. And it keeps, you know, maybe some prices higher than they should be in certain areas if they have a monopoly in that area. Well, you didn't ask, but I I should tell you um, while I'm on the soapbox here that there are other sort of innocuous things that I think a lot of people don't necessarily look out for, but could lead to protracted litigation over the course of time. It's a term, I'm going to give you three terms, confidentiality, proprietary information and trade secrets. This is the sort of the trifecta of, you know, confidentiality restrictions. And um, my advice here, especially when you see very restrictive, very onerous confidentiality restrictions, is be very careful. Again, if a veterinarian is learning how to conduct a veterinary examination and you're not working on this, you know, biotech solution, for figuring out how to, uh, you know, diagnose cancer by taking a picture of the dog, then the idea that you're learning trade secrets or confidential and proprietary information is probably not just not true. There may be some things that are proprietary to that practice. Yes, proprietary means that it's theirs, no one else's, and they came up with it. So, for instance, their list of clients, that particular list of clients, could be proprietary to them. Um, perhaps they have a particular method that they use to perform surgery that they came up with, you know, that would be potentially proprietary to them. Same thing with trade secrets, but for everything else, I think it's very unlikely that, you know, and I've seen, I've seen the, the definitions contain lists of key employees that they also list on their website. Right. And so list of key employees, customer lists, pricing lists that they also probably have on the website. And so, um, there's a lot of things that could be contained in this, the definitions of these confidentiality agreements, which could later come back to haunt you because um, they say that someone has left and they took confidential information with them because they texted, texted themselves a telephone number for a client, right? But you did it so that you could call the client on your off time to continue to service them. I think that there are a couple of things. Be very careful about the definitions that are contained within those confidentiality restrictions. Make sure that they're realistic for the type of work that you're going to be doing. And then make sure that you understand confidentiality restrictions are not going to go away. And so make sure that you understand how to live your life and how to comport yourself so that you do keep uh, communications only on the corporate email. And you do keep communications only on the business cell phone. Or if you don't have either of those things and some practices don't provide them, then you have express written consent from the practice owner to conduct business using your private email, using your private cell phone, because that gives you an escape route. Later on, if someone accuses that you've been, oh, well, you know, Shannon has 
emailed 1,000 clients over the last two years, and she has all their email addresses. And so, yes, that's true. But since I didn't get a corporate email, what other email address was I supposed to use, right? Um, but in order to cover yourself, I think it makes sense to get, get that written consent from the practice owner or from whoever has authority there so that everyone is being realistic and mature. And if that's what it takes for you to get your job done, just make sure you're covering yourself. So that's what I said. That's what I was saying is these agreements can sort of dictate your life for years. And just so you don't think I'm sort of making this up, I have litigated many cases that had to do with the definition of confidentiality and the definition of trade secrets and whether or not it included a Google Maps pin of certain practices that were located around here that that they were choosing to sell services to. Google Maps, which is public, you know, and it's a list of five practices that everybody knows. But anyways, um, yes, is there litigation concerning these things? Absolutely. And so it pays to protect yourself at the outset. And I also should say, you know, that it would pay for you to become acquainted with your state law and become acquainted with the, the federal law concerning trade secrets because every state is different. They do provide protection for trade secrets. Trade secrets, again, are not how to conduct a nose-to-tail examination of an animal. You learn that in school. You know, it's something a little bit more than that. And so if you absolutely cannot get out some onerous language regarding that, it would pay to ask your lawyer, hey, listen, this trade secrets thing, tell me about that so that I can make sure and stay on the right side of the law if the worst comes to worst and I have to leave. There's a couple more things I wanted to talk about just so that, you know, I, I think you asked me offline about this duty of loyalty concept. Yes, that's right. And I don't really know what it means. So that'd be great for you to explain it. The idea is that, and I'm going to back up a little bit, employees and employers have a particular type of relationship. It's called a principal-agent relationship. The principal is the practice owner or the employer, and the agent is the employee. This exists among all industries, but then you know, going back to English common law and certainly within American common law, that's how everything is viewed. The agent or the employee owes certain duties to the principal or the employer. They have to accomplish these things or else they're no longer the agent and they get fired, right? And so one of the things you have to do, obviously, is you have to show up. As an agent, you can't just not show up and not do your job because then you're not actually performing the work. And so you have to follow instructions. That's one of the agent's duties. You have to maintain a duty of confidentiality, meaning you just don't tell your employer's business to everyone. And this exists independent of any agreement, which is why, you know, I, I sort of take issue with how agreements are so onerous when there are common law protections. But one of those is the duty of loyalty. The idea is, is if someone is, is being paid, you know, to come to work during the hours of eight to five or whatever it is that your hours are, then they're going to devote their time and energy to working on behalf of the employer. That's the duty of loyalty. The way I usually see this play out in employment litigation is if someone comes to work and they spend all of their time looking for another job, then they probably have violated their duty of loyalty. They're on work time getting paid, but they're not actually working, you know? Or someone comes to work, they clock in and they leave and they don't come back until it's time to clock out. That's a violation of the duty of loyalty. I don't think the veterinarians really have the opportunity here to do any of that, more than likely, because you're seeing animals, you know? If you're violating your duty of loyalty by not showing up or not doing what you're supposed to do, you're very likely going to lose your job anyways. The idea here is I don't think that any of this should be too scary 
The duty of loyalty will exist whether or not it's contained in an agreement in most states. It's just part of the common law. It has been for hundreds of years. But if you do have a lawyer that you can talk to, it would make sense to check with them on what are the things that employees have to do for their employers independent of any agreement so that I just have an understanding of, you know, how I need to conduct myself, how I should operate uh, when it comes to working. And this is not something that you learn really in any class. It depends on state to state. It depends on particular laws that have been passed. And so only an employment attorney licensed in your state would have an understanding of that. But it shouldn't vary too much from what I've told you. If you're getting paid to do a job, you should be doing that job. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, in your off time or off work hours, pursue other things, such as, for instance, hosting a podcast, writing a book or anything else. But if those are things that you plan on doing, I would make sure and insert that in the agreement so that you have some kind of carve out for this idea that you want to moonlight or you would like to work at a different practice, you know, one day a week so you can learn surgery, whatever it is. um, It makes sense to sort of anticipate that and make sure that the agreement reflects it you know, in some broad language so that you have some protection so that, you know, someone can't turn around and say, oh, you violated your duty of loyalty. How does that work? You know, when it's outside of, you know, your 40 hours or whatnot, how broad do you want your moonlighting to be? Or, you know, what, what kind of claim do they have over your free time? Because I've, you know, had issues with that as, you know, hosting podcasts and doing other content and stuff that employers think it's their right to be able to meddle in what I do in my off work hours as a potential employee. So I'm curious as to why, you know, off work, you know, as long as you're not bad mouthing the business, you know, I get it. But, you know, if you're doing separate things in your own time that don't conflict with, you know, working at another practice when they're supposed to want you working, I don't understand why they would want to have control over what I do in my free time. Yeah, I think it really depends on the particular type of job. I mean, if you're supposed to be on call and you're working somewhere else and you can't make it, that could end up being an issue. If you're not an on-call veterinarian and you show up during your allotted time and you do your job, then it really shouldn't matter where you are when you're not supposed to be at work. Like you said before, it's about finding the sweet spot there. There are competing interests. The employer would want you kind of rested up and ready to work when it comes to, you know, Monday, eight o'clock, show up to work. And if you've been pulling all-nighters working at an ER clinic, maybe you're not going to be doing that great of a job. I tend to treat people who work with me as adults. If they choose to spend their time in a way that's going to make it hard for them to accomplish their job, they're going to figure out pretty quickly that it's kind of hard to make that balance work. And then naturally they they will, you know, decide what they want to do. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's on the employer to force people not to do something, but if they want to impose reasonable restrictions, that's something that's up for negotiation. But there, there has to be a trade-off. If they are going to control some of your free time or prevent you from doing anything else, that's worth something because you're, you're giving right. up your ability to learn. You're giving up your ability to continue to sort of express yourself. And so if that's what an employer wants to do, then they should be willing to pay for it. Yeah, pay for the time that I would be making extra income otherwise. Right, exactly. Otherwise, you're just asking someone to give something up without anything in return. And that's just, that's no way to to conduct a contract negotiation. I think that's really important. And I think it's good. I think it's good if you have the leverage to stick up for yourself. Not everyone does. You know, lawyers, we sort of made a mistake a couple of years ago and opened up a ton of law schools. And so now we have tons of lawyers and it's great. I love all the new lawyers. 
it is, I think, reducing leverage, I think, for, for you know, potential jobs and things like that. And other industries are like that as well. You just have tons of people going around. Veterinarians, you know, you guys are, you have a really special opportunity here. I think for, for many years going forward, there's just not many of you. And um, you, really have, you really have the power. So it's up to you now to, to use that power and, uh, and make some changes. Yes, it sounds like you're uh, talking to Spider-Man and telling him that great, <laughs> you have great responsibility, Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. Yes, with a great job outlook, with a great job outlook <laughs> comes great responsibility. Right, exactly. <laughs> You're listening to Vet Candy. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. And where can um, all of our listeners find out more and, you know, do a little bit more in-depth either research or, you know, any other resources that they can watch or listen to? Well, I've been working with Vet Candy and we're working on a limited podcast series concerning employee rights and sort of these, these employment situations that's going to be coming out soon. So look out for that. And other than that, you can follow me on social media at The Lopez Firm. So we will put all that information down below for you guys. The link with that mini series and his contact info and social media handles. I hope you guys all really enjoyed today's podcast. And I know it had a lot of nitty gritty, lawyery type talk, but I hope, you know, you guys got a lot out of it. I know I learned a lot. And I hope that you guys take your leverage and your power as a veterinarian to ask for what you want because you are worth it and you deserve it and that you find the job that you are truly happy with. So join us next time. This has been Vet Candy IRL and I'm your host, Shannon Gregoire. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.